0: Well, I've got something to show you to start off our uh, our sermon tonight. This is a 1966 Access All Areas Pass for the last ever live gig performed by the Beatles at Candlestick Park. And uh, I bought it for $10 uh, at a flea market in Virginia about 20 years ago uh, from a Russian guy, and I thought bargain of the century. It's been kept in safe storage, uh, but on occasions, I've brought it out and uh, shown it to my friends. Now, one day, I called a music specialist at the auction house, Sotheby's, uh, a, a music specialist there, and asked them, how much would this fetch? Three thousand pounds, came the answer. Yeah, beauty. Okay, mine. He didn't understand what I said, but that's okay. Um, Now, the specialist said it's important to get these things verified and so on, so he said, I'm happy to take a look. Can you email me over a couple of photos? Which I happily did that instant. And guess what? It's a fake! (laughs) Of course it's a fake. You knew that from reading the text earlier. Of course it was going to be a fake. But he did say, do you know what? It's a good one. (laughs) Thanks. That makes me feel a lot better. So it might be worth one pound then. He's like, no, it's actually worth nothing. Uh, He said, it's a good one. It's even got the right kind of printing publishers on the back of it. It's very rare to see that. Most people who fall for these things uh, normally just look at the front. Anyway, it was a good one, he said. he He said he had to do a lot of digging, but it's not real, and it's worth nothing. And that's the nature of fakes. They're good copies. They're sometimes hard to spot. And what we see in this passage that we're looking at tonight, that that's even true in church leadership. Fakes exist. Paul says so here in this passage in 2 Timothy 3. Some leaders who appear to be really, really godly, but actually it's all smoke and mirrors. People who listen to these preachers are the ones who buy into their performance and buy everything they say, but in... What they've learned, what what they've learned from these guys and what they've lived for through their teaching is essentially worthless if it's another gospel. That's why Paul's writing to Timothy, pastor of this church in Ephesus, challenging Timothy to be a courageous leader. We've seen this throughout the book so far. Not only has he been called to well, to avoid these guys, and I'll explain what that means later, but actually to help the church family identify them. Let's not forget that this isn't a letter just addressed to Timothy, but a letter that would be read out. So as we read through the list, imagine that church, and you're, you're in that church on a Sunday, and you hear this letter, this section of the letter being read out. The first thing that you're going to be going through your mind is, oh, who's he talking about? Timothy? Or these guys over here? Those who seem to have, as Paul has accused them of already in the letter, departing from the truth. So Paul says to Timothy, be courageous, got to deal with this. These guys can't be ignored because actually they're not going to go away. People like this will typify what Paul calls in verse 1 here, the last days. Now, that's not some kind of thing that's going to happen right before Jesus comes back. That's just the name that's given to this age or time frame between that first coming of Jesus Christ, like I read about in Hebrews 1 earlier, and that return. So it's now. These are the last days, as they were, back in the apostles' time. And it's this pernicious, anti-gospel work, this pernicious prevalence of anti-God-false teachers is what makes Paul describe this time that we're living in terrible. So what I want to do tonight is basically look at, uh, learn how to spot the difference between uh, false or fake leaders and true leaders. And you'll see from your sermon outline, we're going to do that in two chunks. First of all, number one in verses one to nine, uh, here we find uh, Paul helping us identify marks Of fake leaders and he says you've got to look at two things first of all their character what they're like verses 1 to 5 now verses 2 to 5 actually contain this list of 19 character traits Uh, I want you to see it's not an exhaustive list no one will actually have all 19 but what it is is indicative now I want you to look closely at it what do you think is the essence of this list What's the common theme? It is self-love. The list itself in verse 2 and verse 5 is bookended by it. Verse 2, these false teachers are lovers of themselves. They're narcissists. End of verse 4, they love pleasure rather than God. They are hedonists. And in this black hole of self-love, all kinds of sins thrive. And that's what you see listed like boasting, having an inflated view of yourself, like abusiveness, happy to hurt other people with your angry words and not feel convicted by it, like disobedience of parents, being dangerously and disrespectfully rebellious in your spirit. If it's typical of that relationship, that rebellion will be typical in others. Now, church leaders should not be described in those terms. Need I say it? Christians should not be described in these terms. So this then serves as a warning for believers and unbelievers, actually, in this list. For believers, let me ask you, do you see any of these characteristics in your own lives? And I'm not just speaking to the elders here, the the leaders of this church. I'm, I'm asking all of us. Do we see any of these characteristics in our lives? If so, we may be guilty of the very same self-love that typifies false teachers. And we should deal with it, confess it, seek accountability for it, ask for help. It's a good thing to do. Nobody in this place is perfect, so nobody's going to look down on you with judgment for doing so. I know this church family to be a church family that loves and is eager to serve and eager to minister to each other and eager to help. What's foolish is to not tap into that. There's no telling where unrestrained self love will take you. Look at where it took these guys speaking out against the gospel, dragging other people away from the gospel. That's horrendous. What about if you're here and you're not a Christian? Well, This passage is actually very insightful for you as you're exploring what is the nature of God? Who is he? What is the nature of humankind? What are we like? And what's the problem with this relationship between humankind and God? Well, this passage actually helps you see that this thing called sin that we talk about is not just, it's not primarily about what you do. It's about whom you love. And the essence of sin is... Misdirected love, it's love going in the wrong direction, landing on the wrong person. Where you and not God occupy the central focus of your devotion. That is the essence of sin. You live for yourself, according to your own words. You do what you want to do. You don't care who God is and what he's said. That's the essence of self-love. But that is not what you were made for. And as we've been reflecting on already tonight, this good news is that God has sought to redirect your love by introducing you to his love. The love he made plain in the sending of his son Jesus to die on the cross to take away our sins. To take away this, even this rebellion that we have in our hearts. I want to say to you tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I guarantee you, no one else loves you like that. Not even your closest relative or your BFF. No one loves you like that. The love he made plain in the sending of his son is so glorious. And what he's done should fill our hearts with such love for him, should fill your heart with love for him. And maybe as you've been coming along or talking to your friend about this thing called Christianity, you're starting to grasp the nature of who God is, your sinfulness, his love, what he's done to reconcile you both together. Speak to someone about that tonight. Um, I'm going to be down the front here straight after the service. And I've got a, a Bible I'd love to give you with a wee post-it note in there, a place to start reading. And I've got a couple of New Testaments as well. So there's two or three. If you want to come forward and grab one, you don't have to have a conversation with me. I'm friendly. But if you don't want to, that's okay. You can just take one with a post-it, go and have a read of it. Read it for yourself. Uh, dignify at least the claims of Christianity by reading it for yourself. So many people reject it, having not done so. It's crazy. But have a look at it. It's a great place to start. Now, you'd think with a list as negative as this one, that uh, fake leaders would be really easy to spot, wouldn't you? There's some pretty outlandish, kind of obnoxious behavior in here. And sure, you do see it. It emerges. It's kind of like Gollum. I always imagine Gollum when he's about to, when, he, when the ring's in front of him. You know, or like Bilbo. Do you know that bit in Lord of the Rings where Bilbo's just like, can I just have one way look at that ring? And then I jumped. I don't know about you. And he just goes, rah, for it. You see that kind of nature, that sinful nature emerge from people at times. We can't hide it. Sin will out. Now, it's not like spotting a Dalmatian in a crowd of black labs. It's more like finding Wally in one of those horrible Where's Wally books. Bad leaders are good pretenders, okay? Bad leaders are good pretenders. I could be one. You're responsible for finding out whether or not I am by being like the Bereans in Acts 17 taking what's been said tonight and every other time, going away, looking at it, testing what I have said and what other preachers in this church say, along with what's in here, God's word, to see if they marry up. If they don't, sack me. Bad leaders are good pretenders. Verse 5 says they've got this form of godliness. The Greek word in there is actually morphosis. They're good at morphing. They're shape-shifters. But as Jesus himself taught, this, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, not on an ongoing basis. And by their fruit you will know him. that's why Paul provides this list of identifiable marks and commands us to have nothing to do with those who bear them. So he says first their their nature, their character will identify them to you, but so will their activity. Look at their ministry strategy, their activity, what they do, verses 6 to 9. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you love yourself and are only out for personal gain, what are you going to do? You would do what these guys were doing. They take advantage of the weak, as you see in verses 6 and 7. Here's some of their strategy. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. Now, Paul's not saying here that all women are gullible. What he's highlighting is that anyone with time on their hands and guilt in their hearts and temptation in their spirits will find themselves to be easy targets for false teachers. In other words, those people who are always trying to learn and maybe dig a little bit deeper but never really applying the gospel to themselves, they think that there's some kind of specialist nugget to grasp and move away from the plain teaching of Christ died for your sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. They wander away from the very fact that that God's word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're burdened, they're weighed down, they look for an answer outside of, away from God's word, and they are rich pickings. Are you? These guys prey on vulnerable people. And they're good at it, like those phonies on God TV with their heavy makeup and their teeth veneers. No wonder they look so gorgeous with all that money they make, ripping people off, bleeding their viewers dry with a wink and a promise of health and wealth. But they're worms. False teachers find a way in. The second thing they do, as well as praying on vulnerable people, is they oppose true leaders, verse 8 and 9. And of course you would. What better way to make yourself look awesome than to make others look bad? To present yourself as the man who unlocks all the secrets to true spirituality, all the while criticizing someone else's ministry. Paul says it's not new. And actually, it won't last. They're like Janus and Jambris, who in Jewish tradition, of course, were the two men who opposed Moses and Aaron in Exodus 7. If you remember back to the story of the plagues, where Moses approaches Pharaoh and Aaron too and says, "Let my, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And at first, there's a couple of guys who come along, and it looks like they match the trickery, you know of Aaron and Moses. They give them a run for their money with their signs, but in no time at all, actually by plague three, to be precise, their powerlessness is exposed. They haven't got a clue how to deal with this expression and display of power, because their trickery can't match it. And you never hear another peep about them. False teachers are just like that, says Paul. Verse nine, they will not get very far because in the case of those men, Janice and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. Listen, some will get away with their tricks for longer than others. But even those who maintain their lives all the way to the grave, even if they gain a growing following until the day they die, they will have their foolish rebellion exposed. Evil will always be swallowed up In its own humiliation. Guaranteed. Because God has guaranteed it. Paul's advice, verse 5, have nothing to do with them. In other words, don't associate with them. He's saying, don't be duped by their show. He's not saying, cut off all contact entirely, because he's already said in chapter 2 first thing I want you to do is gently instruct these people in the hope that God might lead them to repentance. In other words, of course, people like me, people who are teachers, can be wrong about stuff. The question is, are they teachable? Are they willing to have their error exposed and be willing to be led to a new understanding based on an explanation of the word of God? Oh, follow that guy. But don't be duped by those who are not teachable and who maintain their error. Don't be jealous of their following. Don't question the gospel that you preach when their gospel becomes something of a bestseller. Don't put yourself in a position where you can be tarred with the same brush. As God's word says, bad company corrupts good character. And Christian leaders... Don't follow after them because you've got a flock to feed and to protect yourself. So do you think with some of that description you might be able to spot a false teacher? Would you be able to spot a liberal who unapologetically tears chunks out of God's word, actually out of embarrassment over it, and a desire to make Christianity more palatable in today's culture? I mean, hundreds of people go through religious motions each Sunday in our city believing that God will accept them because of what they do and that fundamentally they are good people. But sadly, these people will suffer loss. They are being ruined by liberal false teachers. That's terrible. Would you be able to spot a sensationalist? Who designed the creation of worship experiences that stir the emotions and preach life lesson platitudes to felt needs but rarely open the Bible. They might walk around the stage with it. They might wave it a little bit. But are they opening it up and expounding it? Letting God's word do the talking? There are churches in our city that do just that. There's another one opening soon. And I I don't know. I wonder how many people will be sucked in by the experience side of things. I'm not saying these churches are led by false teachers. I don't know. I've not really spoken to the pastors. But I do fear that their practice gives us good cause to question at times if they really understand the gospel and if they really do teach God's word. But these aren't things that I'm saying, go and ask these things of all these other churches as terrible as they are. I'm asking, ask these questions of us. Because the thing that Paul points out in here is that false teachers are those who are themselves deceived as well as deceiving. So it's easy for me to be deceived in my own mind and in my own beliefs. That's why we work together. That's why you've got more than one elder. Do you know that? That's why you've got more than one elder in charge in this church. There's a good number of us for this reason. There are other reasons, but this is one of the reasons. There's a good reason why we as a church are accountable to you. Uh, We as leaders are accountable to you as a church family. We need to learn to spot false teachers, of course, not just by the identifying marks of a false teacher, but actually by knowing the marks of genuine Christian leadership, and this is point two. Verses 10 to 17 we see the identifying marks then of genuine leaders. Now again, you've got to look at two things Paul says, what they're like and what they do, just as he's done with the false teachers in the first nine verses. First of all, he says, look at their character, what they're like. And Paul lists nine things that characterize the life of a genuine Christian leader in contrast with the false teachers. Now you can tell an awful lot about what a person is. Uh, You can tell a lot about a person by what they live for. And Paul tells us in these these first verses, 10 and 11, about what really drives him. And it's patently clear that it's the gospel. Paul preached it, and he actually practiced what he preached. And pleasing God was his primary goal. He didn't live to please himself. Pleasing God was his only purpose in life. That's why he says to Timothy, you know about me. You know my life, my way of life, my purpose, the things I'm living for. Now, when you look at what a person lives for, I want you to see that it's not hard to see what they really love. Look at what they live for. You'll see right into their heart. Look at how they're spending their life, spending their time. Spending their money, spending whatever. And you'll see what they love, what they treasure. And contrary to the false teachers, love for God and his people are the very things that characterize godly leaders. And you see all this boastful pride and self-love of the false teachers is nowhere to be seen in this list. Humility is treasured. It's in the crucifixion of self love that all kinds of virtues thrive. It's beautiful, like those in verse 10, like faith that helps us maintain a clear hope in Christ and his promises will take God at his word. That's what the leader will do, that's what the church family will do. Or patience. Patience that graciously puts up with the things we find irritating or frustrating in order that hatreds can't ruin relationships in a church family. We bear with each other gently. And love, that willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation, or even that the person loved, being loved, is deserving an endurance. To maintain this way of life, even when it's hard, even if it brings the kind of things that Paul lists here in verses 11 to 13 hardship, suffering, persecutions. No suffering and persecution when you're put down or beaten up for doing the most loving thing that you can possibly do in this world, telling people about Jesus. You'll keep going. Are these the characteristics you look for then? In a leader, they ought to be. These are the last days. These are terrible times as well. We've got to be careful and apply these principles. Paul says in verse 13 because evildoers and imposters will actually go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you can be confident in the leadership of a church if the leaders look like those described in the second half of this chapter. If they If they patently live their lives for Jesus, if they love you, the people Jesus has given them to love, and if they keep on doing that no matter what. Well, that's what true Christian leaders will look like. That's how you can identify them, even by the expressions and the outworkings of their character. But what about their activity? We saw that they had some, the false teachers had some risky um, activity, but what about what about good teachers, what do they do? Verses 4 to 17, 14 to 17, we find the answer. They teach the Bible. That they've grown to know, love, and trust. It's dead simple. Timothy, verse 14, continue what you've learned and become convinced of. Timothy, you know that this is absolutely true. He found God's word to be true to its own testimony, its living and active. And interestingly here, Paul appeals to Timothy's teacher to encourage his ongoing Bible teaching ministry. It seems, as I've explained before in this letter, he's actually having a little bit of a wobble. He is both afraid and ashamed in some way. But Paul says in verse 14, as he did in chapter 1, Remember those from whom you learned this. That's Paul, who has discipled him. Timothy has been discipled by a mature believer. What unbelievable value there is in that. Older people, more mature believers, you ought, to be, you ought to have at least one person you're doing a one-to-one-ish type discipleship thing with. Make it a priority. There is no telling the importance of that type of ministry in the local church. If I had no programs in a church, if we canceled everything and we had just that, I'd be a happy chappy. Because it's fantastic. Ministering to each other with the word of God. It's important. So uh, Timothy's had that from Paul. Those from whom you learned it, that's Paul. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. That's jumping back to chapter 1. That's Granny Lois and Mum Eunice. This boy's been discipled in his home, clearly in the Old Testament scriptures. They were God fearing Jews, these people. So he's looked at the Old Testament and been schooled in it and has become convinced of the reality of who God is and who he is. He knows what he's been looking for, what we've been waiting for a Messiah king. And Paul appeals to him look at your teachers, those who've discipled you, look how they live. Look at what drives them in their lives. What do you see? And it's as if Paul says, you're going to see enough to prove that the faithful teaching of the Bible is sufficient. Sufficient for two things. Salvation, sanctification. Coming to know Jesus and growing to be more like Jesus. Salvation, verse 15, the holy scriptures which are able to make you Wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They show you these scriptures, your need for a Savior, because we're sinners under God's judgment. They show you who Jesus is as the Savior. He died to take away our sins and rose to give us new life. They show you how you receive Christ as Savior by repenting of your sins and trusting the gospel, believing in his name. Then they show you how to follow Christ Jesus as Savior. Because the faithful teaching of the Bible is sufficient not only for salvation but for sanctification. Verse 15, all Scripture, all Scripture, 16, sorry, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As that great theologian Colin Buchanan once said, teaching, it tells us the right track. Rebuking tells us when we go off track. Correcting actually tells us how to get back on track. And training tells us how to stay on track. That's what God's word is sufficient to do. And what does that make the servant of God both minister and member? Well, Paul says, verse 17, thoroughly equipped For every good work. Fully furnished. Everything you need for doing the things that God asks you to do. Not lacking one single thing in your selfless and loving service of Jesus Christ, your Savior. This These verses are fantastic for giving us a doctrine of scripture. But that's not what they're primarily here for. They're primarily here to shape what leaders do in ministry, even if they're having a wobble. Continue teaching the Bible. We've just finished Isaiah in the mornings. I don't think we realize just how important it is that we have elders who expect the paid elders in the church to take years to preach through a book of the Bible. There aren't many that will tackle books like Isaiah over the length of time that we have. It's a privilege, really, to take time to go verse by verse through these books. Yes, we'll take time to do other things like we'll focus on Christmas as we're about to do shortly. But this is going to be our steady diet. And all we're going to do is set forth the truth plainly and so, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Not to say, just so we're going to do this so that everybody thinks we're awesome. Not at all. We're going to do all this as if to say, we have done our duty. How will you respond to God's? There is not one person who will come into this pulpit Who wants people going out saying, wasn't Paul great? Wasn't Liam great? Wasn't Andy great? Not at all. We want to recede into nothing if you go out saying, isn't Jesus great? That's all that matters. And we want to handle God's word and continue in it. Even when there's pressure to not do that. So that you guys, as well as us, will be thoroughly equipped to serve the Lord our God in all the ways he calls us to. Is that your appetite? Is that what you hunger for? Oh, I hope so. To close our service, how will we choose? Timothy's been invited then to measure himself alongside these two models. And essentially, there is a very major application for leaders in this particular instance. Leaders, what will Timothy do? Will he pass the test of loyalty to God and the calling of Christian leadership? This is the test that we all face as Christian leaders. What will you do? Will you love yourself and prove your depravity and justify your rejection on that last day, as the false teachers have done and will do? Or will you love yourself last, put God and others first, minister unwaveringly the word of God to the people of God that they might grow in Christ-likeness and play their part as one big crowd of witnesses to go out and tell many, many more people about this Savior that we know? Leaders, what will you be? Brothers and sisters, What kind of leader will you follow? Let's pray together.